before we get going this morning, I, I want to ask you to take out your Bibles, if you have them. If you do not have a Bible, there's a bunch of them on that table over there up against the wall. You can grab one, or you might have it on your phone, but I'm going to ask you to pull them out. Um, I had a really good conversation with some friends this week, and one of the things we were talking about is the fact that I probably don't ask you guys to pull out your Bibles enough. And I also, even going into this message this week, there are certain Sundays when you get into a text and I just feel like um, it's more kind of preachy and a little more lighthearted. There are certain texts that you get into that require way more kind of dissecting and unpacking it, and I'm going to try my best to do that today. But it is a way more teach-heavy passage that we're going to be in. And so it'd be awesome if you guys had your Bibles out because I think you'll have to be tracking with me as we bounce around. And as well as I don't have a ton of time to plant down in some of these sections for very long. And so make some notes and go back this week because I'd love for you guys to take some of the stuff we talk about, these passages, go read them for yourselves and sort of spend time with Jesus and really dissect for yourself what the Lord is speaking to you through this passage. Um, So if you have your Bibles, pull them out. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 8 wrapping up Matthew chapter 8 this morning, and specifically in verses 28 to 34. If you're guest with us this morning, and, or it's your first time, you've kind of walked into a really wacky and unusual Sunday, and I'm, I kind of apologize, but I don't. It's just where we're at in this passage that we've been teaching from. But we're going to be looking at demon possession, and, and specifically this exorcism that Jesus performs in this passage. So how's that sound this morning? Anybody excited to be here? All right. Hopefully you didn't bring anything with you because this is the Sunday that it comes out, right? Um, It's going to be a fantastic Sunday. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive into this thing. Jesus, we thank you. Lord, as much as we joke about this, we know that the battle that we fight is real, Lord, that there has been a battle, a war, a literal war waged over our souls. And Jesus, as we even bring your word out into light this morning, Jesus, we acknowledge the fact that there is another force out there that wants nothing less than to come in between you and your people. And so I pray this morning, Jesus, that you'd help us do the work of dissecting this passage and trying to understand it the best we can. I pray, God, that you would take your word and do the even more difficult work of planting it in our hearts and allowing it to produce fruit in our lives. Jesus, may this Sunday be a Sunday that's maybe eye-opening for some, maybe Um, how's many in this room even nervous, Um, but Jesus, may you put our hearts at ease knowing that ultimately you are the king on the throne. You are the one in control of all of these things, and we need not worry this morning, Jesus, in your presence. And so, um, God, we pray that you be with us, that you'd teach me as I try my best to teach your church, and that you'd bless this time, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Awesome. All right. So Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 34. How many of you grew up in, how many of you were born in the 60s or 70s? Uh, Okay. Um, How about before that? Okay. I don't want to miss out on everybody else. Uh, I was born in the late 70s. And if you were at all coherent in the 80s and 90s, you probably know that there was just a, a ton of movies coming out through the 80s and the 90s that were all had to deal with the spiritual realm, right? These exorcisms and demonic activity and whatnot. And Hollywood was putting a ton of, uh, of money, time into developing these horror films. And it's interesting because it seems like today, 
maybe we're more enthralled with like zombies and the walking dead than we are these, uh, these exorcist type movies. But Hollywood's influence on us as a culture today is still just as strong. But what it seems to have done for most of the population is that it's sort of those movies have created these two extremes in people. Uh, you, you either have uh, the, this group that would place themselves in the like absolutely, I don't believe it at all, it's all make-believe, it's all fantasy, it's all science fiction. So there's that group of people that just don't want to believe that any of it actually exists. It was all created by Hollywood and it's all farce. Um, so this camp would believe that it's there for entertainment, maybe to frighten you a little bit, but that's all. And then there's this other camp on the other side of the extreme where there's this kind of over-fascination and a really, like a, a fear, like a, the, this great fear of the demonic world where demons are like literally found in everything and everywhere. And it's interesting because I, I think that as we get into this text this morning, um, it's sort of calling us to a middle ground, uh, a middle ground where on one hand, we should be challenged and confronted about this idea of this involvement of a spiritual element in the cosmos and in, in the universe and the heavenlies. This, this spiritual element that's anti-God, that's anti-Jesus, and specifically anti-Jesus' people and Jesus' ways, is waged war against Jesus. And all I would suggest to you is, is to look around this world and to create a worldview about how that spiritual realm exists. This is where I'm asking you this morning to take what we read to go for yourself and dig into it and study and know, be informed of what actually exists out there because we cannot live this life naively believing that, that there's not another force out there that's proactively coming at you and trying to divide and conquer and steal and kill and destroy. And so if you look out in the world at all um, and if you consider yourself a spiritual being, why wouldn't you think there's some possibility that there would be this spiritual element of evil that exists in the world? And so this morning, just as sort of a consideration, I hope you can think about this middle ground that would help you consider that there's this spiritual realm where evil does exist. And so as we consider that this morning, know that we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in the fear that Hollywood tells us we have to, that Hollywood has continued to try to push for years. We don't have to live life like handcuffed by the thought of evil. But this middle ground that I'm talking about actually necessitates that we go to Jesus, the one who's in charge of it all. And so as, as we go into Matthew 8, I want to kind of set it up like that. We'll be looking at Matthew 8, and verse 28 specifically sort of sets the stage for these six verses that we're going to talk through this morning. And so I want to read verse 28, and then we'll make some comments on those and keep going. So it says this, verse 28. Are you guys there? Everybody has their Bibles open? I'll wait. Download that app. Come on. Matthew 8, 28. It says this. And when he came to the other side, is anybody uncomfortable this morning right now? Take a deep breath. We're good. Okay. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. I want to stop here. So in verse 28, you've got this journey that started in verse 18 that we've been kind of following Jesus through. And this, this journey sort of is completed, it ends. So in verse 18, Jesus and some of his disciples get into a boat. They push off from this town called Capernaum. They, they've traveled like about six miles southeast across 
the Sea of Galilee, and they've hit this shore down in this country on the southeast section of the Sea of Galilee called the Gadarenes. And, and this area of the Gadarenes, is the, it's the capital of this particular area of this city called Gadara. And the, the reason why it's important for us to note this is because Gadara is one of the 10 cities that make up something called the Decapolis. And so Decapolis means 10 cities. And the Decapolis was located in this Gentile area on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee there, just to the east of the Jordan River. Um, it was primarily a Gentile area, so a non-Jew area, primarily, um, even though you had some Jews in there, but primarily Gentile. And you, you have these 10 cities that make up this whole region on the southeast section of the Sea of Galilee. And the, the cities the, uh, of the Decapolis were grouped together because of their location. So they're all sort of within proximity of one another. And each of these cities functioned as their own kind of autonomous city state, city and state. And so this is why you can have this reference to country of the Gadarenes and then specifically the city called Gadara, and it's part of this greater piece of land, um, the geography called the Decapolis, these 10 cities. And so all I really want you guys to know about this journey is that it's finished. Jesus has left Capernaum. They get into the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and what, what happened last week as we talked about? There's this great storm, and there was a great calm, wasn't there? Jesus, and when we talked about the fact that Jesus it's interesting that Jesus doesn't just calm the storm, that even that great storm Jesus had caused. And, and so they've landed at, on this other side of the Sea of Galilee. They've gone to the other side, as you see this reference in Scripture in verse 28. And this whole idea of the other side is a really important phrase. And it's important because the only way it's used in Matthew's gospel when he refers to the other side is to describe the journey from Jewish territory into Gentile territory. Like they're going into sort of nomad's land, the place that the Jews should not go, and they're entering into the other side. They're going on the other side. Um, and so this is telling us that the journey that Jesus has taken with his disciples from this region called Galilee, which was primarily Jewish, and, and then the, they've gone to the other side, and they've landed in now a region that's primarily Gentile, non-Jew. And so upon getting there at the other side, they're greeted, like strangers get greeted by like Jack Sparrow, right? Uh, these two guys sort of show up right there to greet them as they're coming onto land. And some of you might be asking like, what in the world is this? Because this is quite an interesting reception that Jesus is having as he gets out of the boat on, into this area called the Gadarenes. And so just to give you a little bit of groundwork to lay kind of a foundation so that we understand at least some of these things before we move on, um, I would be sort of naive to think that everybody's coming here today and has the same sort of basic undergirding with regards to the topic of demon possession. Has anybody ever even been around something like that in your life? Anybody? A handful of you. It is really gnarly. It is, was one of the craziest experiences of my life to be around something like that. But I don't want to make assumptions that everybody's been there, done that, or even has any sort of understanding of this. So first things first, what is demon-possessed? What does this mean to be demon-possessed? So as you read this phrase in verse 28, it actually comes from one Greek word. This word, this, this linked, hyphened phrase, demon-possessed, comes from one word, which is, I'm going to try my best, demonazomai. It's this Greek word. 
So in the text, it's two words, again, attached by this hyphen, but the Greek word is one, and it simply means demonized. It means possessed by demons. So you'll see this word translated in other parts of Matthew, even uh, some of the passages that we came through leading up to this where it's linked, it's, it says oppressed by demons, but if you actually go to look at what that, that word is that links that oppressed by demons or demon-possessed, it's the same word, de- de- demonazomai. And it literally means to be demonized, that they were oppressed by demons. So what we have to understand is that it's the same word that Matthew's using. It's oppressed, it's possessed, it's demonized. It's all coming from that same word. There's no difference. So in other words, when you're trying to figure some things out and you're going through the Gospels, don't assume that this is different than that because in one place it's translated oppressed and it's the same word in this place where it's translated as possessed. And all three or both mean the same thing. So uh, in addition, just to help us out this morning, um, so that's the word and where it comes from. But let's like sort of establish a basic definition of what it means to be demon-possessed. What is demon possession? And then I'll move on from here. So um, this is the best definition that I've found. Uh, demon possession is a condition in which one or more demons inhabit the body of an animate being. Most often people, but as we'll see in the passage today, pigs. And can at will control that being. So that's the basic definition. So something these, these beings are controlling another being. So there are times when you go through the Gospels where many demons inhabit one person or one being. For instance, in, in Mark's Gospel account of the same story that we're reading this morning, Jesus gets into this dialogue with the guy who's possessed and he asks the demon, what's your name? And the demon responds with this. The demon says, we are legion for we are many. So it wasn't just one demon in the sky. It was a legion of demons possessing this man. And so the term legion comes from a military, a Roman military unit. And in a Roman military unit, a legion included 6,000 people. And so use your imagination there. Who knows how many demons were in this guy? But when the demon responds, we are legion, we are many, it's not just a couple demons that have possessed this man. It's a slew of them. And so we have examples where there are many demons that inhabit a being, and then there are times when there's only one demon that resides in them. And there's also the sense in the Gospels that there are different levels of influence um, of demon demon possession and how that works. Like, I, I don't quite understand any of this. I'm not at all standing up before you guys this morning saying... I've got this all figured out and I know exactly how it works. Trying my best to break this down for you so that we can understand, one, that this is real, two, what the purpose of it being written is, and three, like how we can learn from this passage of Scripture. So the Gospels are kind of mysterious when it comes to this, when it comes to demon possession. There, There sort of seems to be different levels, and I say that because there are some cases where there doesn't seem to be any power left at all whatsoever in somebody's body when they're possessed by a demon. For example, you have demons or these people living in tombs, as he talks about in this passage. And then there are other times where demon-possessed people actually seek Jesus out and they, they, they want freedom, like they want to get out. And so they come to Jesus and they want to see Jesus. They want to be freed from, these people want to be freed from their possession. But another question that's often asked when we read this passage is where did the demons come from? Like, how did we get demons to begin with? And again, the Bible doesn't give a ton of details with this regards, 
but we can sort of piece together that they were at one time these angels created by God that were probably fallen um, and who in, in being fallen took the lead of Lucifer, Satan, the devil. They rebelled against God and they were thrown out of God's heavenly presence and now sort of make up this evil um, sort of like cosmic army that's opposed to God and that's opposed to God's people. And so how do we get that? If you look in like Revelation 12, you read, and the great dragon was thrown down, that, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels, Satan's angels, were thrown down with him. So they were thrown down to the earth. And this is why demons are sometimes referred to as fallen angels. Although that phrase fallen angels doesn't appear in the Bible anywhere, but the idea of this does. So now you have angels following this lead of the, of the lead of Lucifer, of Satan, thrown out of God's heavenly presence because of their rebellion. And then Jesus himself says in Luke 10 that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so as you look back on verse 28 in Matthew 8, you can see like some additional insight about the demonic realm. First of, first of all, the demonic realm's dedication to death and destruction. Like it just goes after anything it can to, to kill and to deceive, to destroy. So when you read through this passage earlier, it talks about the possessed living in tombs, that these were holes in the side of hills that were reserved for dead bodies. And so in, in John 8, Jesus said that Satan has been a murderer from the beginning. Like he sought to kill. He's an enemy. So the, the last enemy that stood before Jesus was death. And Satan and his minions were committed to death, to destroy. And I think this is all highlighted in the fact that they're living in graves. Anybody in here live in a grave just for the heck of it? Like there's a reason that they're living in tombs. They seek to destroy. They, they, they're fueled off of death. And the second thing you see about the demonic realm here is that it, it demonstrates this sort of otherworldliness. I mean, how crazy is it? Like, in other words, we, we see some things that demonstrate that these guys are possessed by something otherworldly. The, the, this passage says that they were coming out of the tombs, and then it says, so fierce that nobody could pass them. So fierce that nobody could pass them. That doesn't sound promising, does it? Like nobody stood a chance to get past these guys. So strong that nobody could pass them by. In Mark's gospel account of the same story, he says that they had often been bound with chains and shackles, and that they had chain that that their chains had been torn apart and the shackles broken into pieces, and that nobody could subdue him. It sounds otherworldly. So here's another question that I was thinking about. What else can we discover about the demonic and their work in individual lives? Like what kind of things manifest themselves? And you see a lot in different places. For example, if you just go to a chapter ahead, I'll give you the reference and you guys can spend some time looking at it on your own. Here's a bunch of them. But you go to Matthew chapter 9, verse 32, and you read that a man was made mute through demonic possession. In Matthew 12, 22, you, you read that a man is made blind and mute. In Luke 13, 11, there's a woman that's been physically disabled for 18 years by a spirit. Matthew 17, 15, there's a boy that's epileptic as a result of a spirit. Mark 9, 18, there's a spirit that makes a man mute and causes him to convulse and throw himself on the ground. In Mark 5, 5, uh, in Mark, again, giving the same account of Matthew 8, 
the demons are causing the man to cut himself with stones. And this is just in the gospel accounts alone. So if you read further, even outside of that, go into Paul's writing, he talks about the, de- the, de- the demon's commitment to like the bombardment of our thoughts and our intentions, like this battle of the mind that happens in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And you could go verse after verse. This is just a handful you see of like physical, mental, spiritual, like volitional onslaught by the demonic in scripture. And so before we go any further, I want to be clear about something because I I don't want you to take what I've said wrongly or land in a place that I'm not intending for you to land this morning. So I'm not suggesting that all displays of things mentioned in these passages are demonic. Please understand that this morning. I'm not saying that. We're physical and spiritual beings that live in a fallen world. And as a result of living in a fallen world, we see the results of sin in this world on a regular basis. They impact our lives, our bodies. Sin impacts every aspect of our life. And so I want to be clear on that, that I'm not saying if you, you know, if somebody's disabled, they're demonic. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying in Scripture, we see a handful of accounts where there's specific reference made to somebody who was in a certain physical condition as a result of a spirit doing this to their body. It's pretty interesting. And so I want to remind us again, too, that the battle that we fight is not of flesh and blood, right? We're reminded that the battle we fight is of powers and principalities in heavenly places. It's not here on earth. And so my caution, even in this, in, in wanting to be balanced in our approach to this topic, is that if your life has no room for the possibility of there being some sort of evil spiritual influence then you're probably going to be attempting to fight this battle in this present darkness with plastic swords and Nerf arrows. And Jesus did not call us to fight this battle that way. Instead, we fight it with the sword of the Spirit, with the shield of faith. Like we arm ourselves spiritually to fight a spiritual battle. And so with all of that, um, in, in verse tw- with verse 28 sort of setting the stage for us, I want to look at the rest of these six verses in this section And here's how I kind of want to outline these verses. We're going to sort of borrow and steal from Matthew, uh, because what Matthew says in these six verses, um, he he doesn't, he, he sort of says, like, I don't want you to miss out on something. Like, I want you to make sure you see something in here. And so Matthew begins to use this statement. He says, behold. And he does that with this exhortation, like, behold. A few weeks ago, we talked about Matthew's use of this word, Behold, and Matthew loves to use that word. If you read through his gospel, he's constantly using that word. And it's a word that literally means to stop and see, to listen. There's a reason that that behold is in there. It's a word that means don't miss this. And so if it's good enough for Matthew, then it's good enough for us. And so he uses this word behold three times in these six verses. He says this word behold. And so I want to sort of stop at each of those beholds and notice the three things that I think Matthew's trying to get at in this passage. The first one is this, is behold, and he's hinting at the the recognition of Jesus. Like, he wants us to see and recognize Jesus. Second, and and I'll talk about this word a little bit because I've been learning about it this week, and this is why I decided to use it, but the vitriol towards Jesus. And so he wants us to see that. 
Um, I, I started sort of digging into this word this week and thought it was like the most fitting word for this section. But it means cruel or bitter criticism. So the, there's the recognition of Jesus. There's this vitriol towards Jesus. And then finally, there's this priority over Jesus. And so I want to take them one by, one by one, these beholds. So the first behold, if you look at verse 29, are you guys there? Got it? Okay, verse 29. He says, and behold, he says, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O oh, what? Son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? And so what do they recognize at this first behold? They recognize who Jesus was. We've been talking about this all along, that Jesus is revealing himself, his authority, his power. He's making himself known to people. And so these demons, the first thing out of their mouth is, oh, son of God. They acknowledge Jesus for who, who he is. So in contrast, to, in contrast to last contrast to last week, remember there was this great storm and then this great calm. And remember the question that, that arose in verse 27 last week of the disciples that were in the boat. What did they say? They said, what sort of man is this that the wind and the sea obey him? Like the demons know Jesus better than the disciples do at this point. They're saying, oh, son of God. They recognize Jesus for who he is. And second, they recognize what their fate is. So what's their fate? Their fate, as he states here, their fate is torment. Their fate is punishment, and specifically this certain coming of torment, like at a place in time. In Revelation 20, it speaks of this in verse 10. It says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Their fate was eternal torment. And so when the demons see the Son of God, what are they fearing? Are you sending us there now? Now you start to understand a little bit why they want to go into pigs, right? Like, is this the, is this the end of it for us where we're going to live in eternity in torment? Like, they know who he is and the power that he has. And so the third recognition there in verse 29 is that they recognize the purpose for which Jesus came. Like, why did Jesus come? We get here in verse 29. One of the reasons Jesus came, if you look at 1 John, I know I'm bouncing around a lot, but chapter 3, verse 8, he says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In Mark 3, 27, Jesus says this, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So it's hard to understand like what he's talking about when we just drop into this text here in Mark chapter 3. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am the strongest one and I've come into the man's house. This reference to Satan, the strongest one is, has come. I've come into the strong man's house to rob him. I'm going to take what he has. I'm going to plunder his house. This should be encouraging to us as Christians. I know it's like dead silent crickets in here. But this should be encouragement to us. Like Jesus exists to plunder the strong man's house. To kill death and sin once and for all. Like he's on our side. He's fighting for freedom. He's fighting to liberate us, to break the chains and the shackles off of us. And Matthew 8 is an example of this. Like this is why he's come. 
So what does the recognition of Jesus by these two demon-possessed men lead to? They cry out. It says, behold, they cried out. And I highlight that because this is not like yelling. It's this guttural cry from within them. And actually, if you research this word cried out, it's used in connection with women having babies, and it's used in connections with ravens croaking, and it's something from the gut, like this crying out. And they're saying, what are you doing here, Jesus? It's not time yet, Jesus. Like, we know who you are, Jesus. They know their fate, and they know who he is, and they're literally crying out because they're in fear of the power that he has. And so that's the first thing we notice is this first use of the word, behold. They're crying out because of who Jesus is. The second behold is this vitriol towards Jesus. It says, now a herd of many pigs, in verse 30, a herd of many pigs, as according to Mark's account, 2,000 of them, was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And what did Jesus say to them? It's really not that hard. It starts with a G. Thank you. He says, go. Is that not rad? <laughs> Like the power and the authority of Jesus. Like I love how Matthew affirms and affirms and affirms and then calls us to see the power behind Jesus' words. Like think about this. In the, story, uh, in the story of this legion of demons, they leave at the word go. Last week, the storm stopped at the word stop. Look back at verse 16. Uh, it says that he cast out spirits with a word. If you look back at the healing of the centurion's servant, when the centurion said, you don't have to go to him, just say the word. Look back at the leper that we talked about a couple weeks ago that was healed a few verses back. He said, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I will. I mean, is that not amazing that Jesus has to speak a word and these things flee in his presence? His words have so much power. And I know this is kind of heavy, but like I really don't want us as a church to miss this this morning. This is why we teach from the word of God, because we're teaching the very words of Jesus that have the power to step into dark places and shove darkness out. The word of God. So they, they came out, it says, and went into the pigs, and behold, here's the second behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And so I use this word vitriol towards God. And I use it purposefully because they have this hatred for Jesus. I, I was researching this term vitriol this week and found out that it was connected to sulfuric acid. And it speaks of destruction. So in other words, the demons didn't merely hate Jesus, they wished to destroy Jesus along with everything that's attached to Jesus. And so here's the thing. It doesn't say that they hate him necessarily, but I want you to look at their request. They're begging, in fact. Remember verse 31, they asked, they begged, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Why in the world are they begging for this? Why? And you can go read tons of commentaries. I'm going to try to break down the couple different options for you to save you some reading time. But there's two common answers to this question. Like, why do they request to go into the pigs? The first is that the demons had to possess something. They couldn't just be like free-for-all spirits. So the first answer that you'll find is 
people would say, yeah, they just needed to be somewhere and they had to be in an animate object and so the pigs made most sense. That's a common answer that's given. And so they asked Jesus to go into the pigs. This could be true, I don't know. Um, demons certainly do want to possess things. But does that mean that they have to possess something? And the Bible isn't necessarily super clear on that. The second reason that's given often um, for this request to go into the pigs is that what's being depicted here is how bad their fate is going to be. That they're so, like I talked about before, that these demons would rather be in a herd of pigs than go into the abyss of eternal torment to live eternally. And this could be true as, as well. But I want to present one other option to you this morning. Because I don't think that their request necessarily become, comes because of those two reasons. I think that there's something more, at least in my mind as I was like studying through this. And so I kind of want to run you through some questions that I have that have been racing in my mind as I've been reading through this and sort of help you understand how, how I'm seeing this. But one of the questions I had right off the bat is why pigs? Why pigs specifically? It seems kind of interesting that there's this herd of pigs and that he chooses, they choose the pigs to be cast into. So in the same way, there's, there's also this interesting um, parallel. If you look at the parable of the prodigal son, anybody ever read that parable? In the parable of the prodigal son, what does the prodigal son long to eat? The food of pigs. Longs to eat the food of pigs. It's not sheep, it's not cows, it's not goats, it's not bunnies, it's pigs, right? He's longing to eat the food of pigs. Secondly, like, why this herd of pigs that, ha that, that happened to be like this income source for the general population there in the Gadarenes? Like, these weren't just wild pigs hanging out by the Sea of Galilee. It was 2,000 pigs that were raised by herdsmen very intentionally. And so why do they ask, beg, to be cast into their primary income source for the community that's sitting there in 2,000 pigs? Thirdly, why are the pigs destroyed? And I don't know if these are questions that you ask, but like as I read through this, I'm like, you know, why pigs? Um, why were the pigs destroyed? And why do the pig, you know, the pigs run down to the sea and, and, and they drowned? And, so, and then the other question um, that maybe should bug all of us in relation to this is like, why does Jesus say yes? Why does he listen to them? Like, if the first couple of answers that I gave you as possibilities are correct, then so what? Hey, Jesus, we want to we go into something. Okay, well, I'll send you into some pigs. So why does Jesus say yes? Like, it's a really important question for us to understand in this passage. Jesus, why do you say yes to a legion of demons that lead to the destruction of this herd of pigs that have been used as a primary income source for this community? And here's the last question. If, if demons long to inhabit other animate beings, why is it never mentioned anywhere else in Scripture? That they're just looking for animate beings to go into. Jesus has a ton of exorcism in his ministry. So why isn't this message, message, uh, mentioned anywhere else? And so 
if the reason why they ask and Jesus says yes is not to inhabit something, it's not to demonstrate how bad their fate is going to be, then what is it instead? And I want to give three answers that I've been kind of wrestling through um, in studying this passage that are all kind of built on one another. But the first is this. Again, because demons are about destruction. They want to kill. They're about mayhem. They're about murder, which is really depicted in the destruction of these pigs. And this sort of paints a picture for us of what the demonic realm seeks to do to mankind. Second, um, because of what the destruction of the pigs would accomplish, it was vital because of what the, destructions of the, uh, the destruction of the pigs would accomplish. Like, and the third answer is because of what we read in, we read in Isaiah chapter 65. Um, if you've read through the book of Isaiah, it's this massive book, 66 chapters. And the, the general theme of the book of Isaiah is that like, God's people have rebelled. They're, they're being punished by way of these other nations. Um, and God in his mercy, God in his long suffering and his grace is going to send this suffering servant of the Lord who's going to come, but he's not going to look like they intended. It's not going to be like they imagined. He's going to be crushed for their iniquities. He's going to be pierced for their trans for their transgressions, and that's in Isaiah 53. But the book of Isaiah doesn't end in 53, and it goes on to say that the servant of the Lord that's coming to bring back the people of God to himself is not just going to go to Israel, but that he's actually going to go to the nations. He's actually going to go worldwide. And so if you look in Isaiah 65, written 700 years prior to Jesus coming on the earth, this is what it says. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoked me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs, and spend the night in secret places. Who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. 700 years prior to Jesus, this was written. Behold, like, I don't want you guys to miss this this morning. So Matthew 8, we sort of have this fulfillment event going on where Jesus, again, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy that was given 700 years prior, even in this one specific event. And it was meant to paint this picture of the extent of Jesus' mission and his ministry. He came to a people who did not seek him a people who were far off, a people who were on the other side, so to speak. He came to the lost and the dead, people who lived in tombs, who ate pig's meat. They didn't just eat pigs, they actually raised pig's meat. They tended pig's meat. That's how far gone they were. And they followed this pattern of their own minds and thinking, and Jesus comes along, and what does he say? Jesus says, I'm here. I'm literally here. I've come to you. I'm ready to be found. And what did the people say in response to Jesus? Don't come near. Don't come near me. And why did they say that? 
the third behold statement in verse 33 and 34. It's because of the priority over Jesus. It says this, the herdsmen fled. Going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Like, this is awesome. They're, they're all fired up, and they're telling everybody about this amazing miracle that took place because they all knew who these men were that would have been possessed and living in tombs that they couldn't get by. And so they're going back in the city, and they're telling everybody, but my question for you is, what did the city hear? What was actually more important to them than acknowledging who he was and inviting him in? So look at this. He goes on in verse 34. And behold... All the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Don't come near. Like, get away from here. And it's interesting that, that this is the second beg that Matthew highlights. Like, the first one comes from the, the demons who begged to be cast into these pigs, and the second here is by the citizens of the city coming out who begged Jesus to go which kind of answers our question. Like, why do the demons beg to go into the pigs and why are they destroyed right after? Because it would actually cause a city to beg that Jesus leave. That's the demonic realm. Like, it's opposed to Jesus. The demonic realm is opposed to Jesus and his people doing whatever they can to cause people to be like the people of this city that will just keep Jesus away. Don't come here. And so they ask him to leave. And you see the destruction of the pigs, like just like the storm that Jesus was in with the disciples that we talked about last week, that, that it somehow pressed in on these priorities of the people and they came to the conclusion that Jesus had to go because you're getting too close and you're shaking up our territory and we just don't want you here because you're messing things up, Jesus. Anthem. Do you know that there are many who, in spite of rubbing up against Jesus and drawing near to him, prefer pigs over people and commerce over Christ? It happen, it's happening all around us constantly. Don't mess up my life, Jesus. Don't come too near. I, I don't want you to mess this bubble that I've created up. God, I don't, I don't want you to come in and like ask me to walk away from everything I have to follow after you and lay it all down. I, I'm not into that much risk. I want to know you enough that I can like kind of go to church and get to know Christians. I can label myself, do some of the right things. I don't want you near enough that you're actually going to shake up my life and my priorities. And in doing so, we choose pigs over people. We choose commerce over Jesus. One author wrote this. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here. The priorities we set consciously or unconsciously betray what we judged to be important. This town was far more comfortable with demons living in their midst than having a visitation of Jesus. And I wonder about us. Like, I wonder about our city. Like, Matthew's account of this event, ending in verse 34, ends kind of sad. Like, Jesus departs the region. He's gone. Like, they don't want him there. But thankfully, 
It's not the end of the story. Because even though Jesus is asked to leave, which he does, he doesn't actually leave the region empty-handed. And so notice what Mark adds in his account of this in Mark chapter 5. He gives us a little bit more insight. He says this, verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends tell them, uh, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Like that's the cool side of the story that we don't get in Matthew's account, but we pick up in Mark's. And so the next time that Jesus shows up to the Decapolis, what happens? The crowds actually come to greet Jesus. They actually, they're excited to, to, to see him, to meet him. And then you've got events like the feeding of the 4,000, which happened in this place. Isn't that awesome? So Jesus starts to do like real work in this place down the road. And Anthem, I love the fact that Jesus is willing to go to the other side for just one or two. But he doesn't stop there. It's not just about one or two. He'd do it for one or two, but it's not just about one or two. And I'm also challenged by the reality that sometimes things need to be destroyed before the fruit can be realized afterwards that there has to be a death before new life comes. Which answers this question, like why does Jesus say yes to these demons? Because what existed, the, the demonic possession of God's people, has to be destroyed. It has to. Because there's a mission at hand and Satan is getting in the way of it. Don't be naive enough to think that that's not the case. Honestly, it's not coincidence that week in and week out, I kid you not, when it comes to teaching a passage like this or like a specific event or something really neat that our church has going on where like the Lord knows that people are going to be reached, our staff's lives go like up in smoke for a week and weird things start happening. It's crazy. And I've been around ministry for long enough to see the patterns there and recognize them for what they are and not play the enemy's games, his stupid games. And what he wants to convince you is that you don't stand a chance. What he wants to convince you is that you need to keep Jesus far enough away that he doesn't invade your space, but close enough that you can still call yourself a follower. And that does not work in the kingdom of God. It doesn't work. One of the most life-changing experiences in my life um, and I won't get into the details of this, but I was in Egypt for some skateboard uh, ministry. And after this demo we did, we were on this, these tennis courts. On, we had some skate ramps set up on these tennis courts. And after the event was over, they opened up the gates. And like 400 people come in. There's like 10 of us there to pray for people. And we're like, uh, where do you start? You know, so we're, we literally grabbed the bodybuilder guys and the unicycle guy and all these other people that were like performing with us. And we're like, all right, divide and conquer. And this man walks up to me and one of the other BFC guys and he goes, um, uh, my niece is demon possessed. And we're like, what? And I'm not even joking. The girl was standing there and it, she had just the darkest look on her face. I've never seen anything like it in my life. And, um, 
it led to this experience where we literally had some other pastors that had been around similar circumstances. We took this girl with about 10 of us um, off to a place that was kind of out of the crowd and began to pray for this girl and watched the Lord deliver her. And I wish I had the pictures to show you guys the before and after of this girl because it was like the joy of the Lord was present in her that was not there to begin with. And for me, like at 20, whatever, seven or 28 years old, it was this amazing picture of like, this is the real work that Jesus wants to do. Invade the dark places. Toss the dark out. Bring his light. Set the captives free. And maybe you've come to realize that there are more than one possession that you can actually see in this event. I was thinking about this this week. That there's this obvious possession of these demons and the men, but there's this other possession, and it's the pigs and the people. It's the sin in the people, which leads the people to ask Jesus to leave. Just go. Don't get in my way. So as I prayed through this this week, I wanted to leave you with this question. What possesses you? What in your life gets in the way of Jesus? Is there something that literally needs to be exercised? Do you believe that Jesus is powerful enough to deliver in a word? Go. Stop. I will. I have no idea where you guys are at this morning and I don't make assumptions that there's literally demon-possessed people here. But I do make the assumption that there's some in this room that aren't too off from the people that are in this city that are just saying like, I'm gonna keep you at a distance. Don't disrupt my life. And Anthem, we talk about wanting to see our city impacted for the gospel of Jesus. It doesn't come by way of people that are just an arm's length away from Jesus. Like that impact comes from people who have literally spent time with him, wrapped their arms around him. So as we pray, um, I wanna pray for some of you. We're gonna spend some time worshiping. I was even reminded this morning as like one of our elders, Henry, is having some hearing problems and losing his hearing and I'm not trying to turn this into like a name it and claim it service. Come forward, we're just gonna heal everybody. But I am gonna say, we can't read these gospel accounts of, the, of Jesus' life and not believe that Jesus actually seeks to deliver, that Jesus actually seeks to heal, and that the end game isn't just to heal your body, it's to heal your heart and your soul. And if you're here this morning and you need heart and soul healing, would you be willing to come forward this morning and receive prayer? We have a table over there that'll be manned by some folks that would love the opportunity to pray with you. Let me close this in prayer. If you'd stand with me. Jesus, I want to acknowledge this morning that you are the way and the truth and the life, that nobody comes to the Father except by you. And so we believe this morning that there's no other way, no other on-ramp to God except through Jesus. And so I pray for those in this room that have maybe struggled to make a decision with whether or not they would follow you, surrender their life, 
submit all to you. And Jesus, if they're here this morning and there's somebody that would want to make that decision, I pray, Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to them, that they would confess with their mouths that you are Lord and believe in their hearts that you weren't just a good prophet, you weren't just a good teacher, you were the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Son of God sent to us to forgive the sins of mankind. And even when they tried to kill you on a cross, you did not stay there, but you rose again. And I pray, Jesus, for those in this room that have just kind of kept you an arm's length away, that instead of just acknowledging you and kind of keeping you outside of their bubble, that this morning they would invite you in. Come, Jesus, come this morning. Jesus, I thank you for your church, and I can't read these passages and not think to myself, what an amazing, amazing God we serve. To think that creation bows to you, that all creation at a word can be shifted and moved and obey. And Jesus, for us this morning, I pray, Lord, that we acknowledged you as King of kings and Lord of lords, that you have all authority and all power. Um, God, we surrender in our lives to you. We pray, Jesus, that you go with us. I pray that you'd just envelop your church, that your spirit would abide within us and us in you. And Jesus, as we go this afternoon, would we leave here just with a total joy and peace that the God we serve is actually the one who created it all, that knows all, that's coming back for his church. And I pray, Jesus, that we would be a church that's ready for the return of Jesus to go home to our eternal home with you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. As we spend some time worshiping this morning, we like to take this time as just a response to God's word. And I have no idea where you're at this morning, but know that our hearts long to worship Jesus. And so as we worship him this morning, allow your heart to give him honor and gratitude, thanksgiving, to praise his name for who he is and acknowledge him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you need prayer this morning, um, Gary and Margot are over there at the table up against the wall. They'd love the opportunity to pray with you. Have a blessed week. Let's worship.